Sometimes just the slightest alteration can make all the difference. Remember the last time you were home? Two years, 264 days, and this morning. In the summer of 1996, producers Doug Wick and David Franzoni approached Ridley Scott to direct a picture set in ancient Rome. They showed him not the script, but a painting, Pellice Verso, by French artist Jean-Léon Jérôme. Unveiled in 1872, it depicted a gladiator in the Colosseum, awaiting fatal judgment from the crowd as to whether he should kill his opponent. The producer's unusual pitch worked, which was just as well, because at that stage, Wick and Franzoni did not have a script. But by the time the cameras rolled in the spring of 1999, with tens of millions of dollars already spent in pre-production, Franzoni's screenplay of a slave named Narcissus who kills the Emperor Commodus was nowhere near good enough. Certain he could get it right, Scott then recruited John Logan to do a complete overhaul. Logan had already collaborated with Scott on RKO 281, the Emmy award-winning HBO feature about the making of Citizen Kane. Logan's changes undoubtedly improved things, but still there were serious problems. The biggest of which was that the lead character, now named Maximus, and now a general, appeared to have one aim and that was to become emperor, which meant that he was killing anyone who got in his way of his ambition. With the filming about to begin, Wick had the inspired idea of consulting yet another writer, William Nicholson, whom he had already hired for a World War I project titled Alone. Nicholson had already earned an Oscar nomination for adapting his own Tony Award-nominated play, Shadowlands. Here is Nicholson in interview for the 2002 BBC documentary, The Hollywood Machine. I saw at once that they had a potentially very, very good story here. There was some fantastic stuff in it, and, and I knew Ridley Scott would do amazing work. But I could see big problems. The key thing that I identified was that the main character, though exciting, charismatic, was not somebody you cared about. So my pitch was, look, we've got to love this guy. Why would you love a guy who's a soldier who then tries to kill an emperor? Nicholson's suggestion was small but profound. In essence, what it did was transmit to the audience a value code, the moral tone of what was to follow. Instead of Maximus pursuing power, he would run from it. Marcus Aurelius offers him the rule of Rome but he turns it down. Why? Because another suggestion Nicholson made was to have Maximus want nothing more than to return home to his wife and child. Those two small changes don't profoundly change the plot, but they do change the tone of the story and the motivation of the main character. Suddenly, Maximus is more than just a soldier. He is a family man, a man of principle and honour, a farmer, a man connected to the earth. In the proper sense of the word, a hero, he protects and serves. Here is Nicholson again, this time from 2014 at the London Screenwriters Festival, in interview with producer and current director of the National Film and Television School, Nick Powell. If you can remember the beginning of Gladiator, it begins with a hand coming in over a field of corn. Then you're um, with uh, Maximus and he looks up and he sees a bird on a tree. He walks around a corner and there's the whole Roman army. All those images were written in the screenplay to deliver to the audience the message, this is a very successful warrior, a very successful fighter who does not want to fight, he wants to go home and be a farmer. He's not there looking at his battle plan, sharpening his sword, he does not want to be a soldier. And that change in sensibility can be heard in the film score by Hans Zimmer. Gladiator marked the third collaboration between Zimmer and Scott, 
the previous pictures being Black Rain and what I contend is Scott's best film. Here is Scott on the special features for the Thelma and Louise DVD, explaining how Zimmer's score brought another dimension to the film. To me, music is very visual because it evokes pictures. In my head, I listen to his music and don't even have to shut my eyes. I can see the pictures. And so that's why I know, in many respects, I can talk pictures to Hans. He responds to pictures. And here is Zimmer, also on the special DVD features, explaining what he wanted to avoid. I wanted that longing in the tune of, right from the word go, right from the beginning, something unattainable for them and um, and a bit rough, you know, a bit bit sort of boisterous and, and definitely not sort of the girly sentimental thing with a bunch of strings going. From as early as the second feature film, Alien, Scott's films have frequently equipped the female characters with groundbreaking resilience, especially in those genres too often dominated by men. Admittedly in Gladiator, there is only one prominent female character, Lucilla, played by Connie Nielsen. But when it came time for Zimmer to score the picture, it was another score that Zimmer had done, with, coincidentally, Ridley's brother Tony, that bore a great influence on the score for the Roman epic. When Zimmer first presented the score for Crimson Tide, he was politely told by producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer to start over, and under no circumstances were those Russian-sounding vocals to be heard again. But Tony Scott was able to successfully argue that because the film never showed the Russian Navy, having the voices on the soundtrack, the audience was aware of their constant threat. Zimmer did something similar for Ridley's historical epic. With all those Roman legions, generals and gladiators, Zimmer identified there was simply too much testosterone flying around. Perhaps more than coincidentally, the film's editor, Pietro Scalia, had one of Lisa Gerard's CDs on the shelf in the editing suite. Here is Scalia revealing a very important point about editing. When I was uh, starting off as an assistant, the best advice I got was from uh, Claire Simpson, who was editing Wall Street at the time. And she also had worked with one of the great uh, editors, Didi Allen. Uh, she's kind of like the godmother of, of editors. What Didi Allen told Claire Simpson, and Claire Simpson told me, is like, everything is about rhythm. It moves you. It, uh, it also reflects uh, the rhythm of your heart in terms of emotion. So rhythm is very important. Undoubtedly, Lisa Gerard's vocals provide a crucial counterpoint in the music, holding long, unwavering notes while beneath, Zimmer's instruments reverberate to a different tempo. More than that, Gerard's vocals serve as the voice to the second woman we see in Gladiator. And even though she is identified only as Maximus's wife, and even though we never hear her utter a word, her spirit is present throughout the entire film. It is her memory that drives Maximus on, and it is her love that ultimately draws him home. And all that from Nicholson's suggestion that initially seemed small, but as filming began, was already felt as a profound alteration. 
and that would carry all the way through to post-production. Here is the composer on the special features for the Gladiator Blu-ray. I mean, if you think about the first image we have in the film, which, you know, you hear the name of the movie, it's called Gladiator, and then the first image you see, the, wheat, the hand on the wheat, it's so poetic. And there's an image which keeps repeating in the movie, which is Russell Crowe before a fight, reaching into the earth and touching the earth. I mean, he's a farmer, that's the idea, he needs to touch the earth. And, it, and I didn't know about this image, but I remember sitting there with Ridley in this muddy field. I remember reaching down and just taking up a clump of earth and sort of suddenly I was in the movie. Zimmer's ability to evoke feeling through either a few notes or, more specifically, instrumentation, reflects not just how versatile a composer he is, but how rich his references are. For Gladiator, there was an obvious need to conjure up the ancient world. Zimmer specifically called for what, to my untrained ear, I would call a clarinet, but in actual fact is an Armenian instrument that is thousands of years old, the duduk. That is heard most prominently in the Moroccan sequence, but the theme is echoed throughout. As indeed is the music that accompanies the opening battle in Germania. There, Zimmer was drawing on Mars from Gustav Holt's Planet series. then later when the story arrives in Rome. We hear echoes of Siegfried's funeral march from Richard Wagner's Goethe Damaholm. Although the estate of Gustav Holst tried to sue Zimmer for plagiarism, that is no more a legitimate claim than if the descendants of William Shakespeare had tried to sue David Fransoni for writing a script that was reminiscent of Macbeth, and then pursuing William Nicholson for his altering Fransoni's screenplay into something that resembled Hamlet. Whether inspired by real life or other art, no art is created in a vacuum, and in Gladiator, there is little better proof of that than in the cinematography of John Matheson. When Scott agreed to take on the $100 million epic, perhaps his greatest challenge was to redress a genre that had last been visited over 40 years earlier with the likes of Covadus, The Robe, Land of the Pharaohs, The Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, Spartacus, Cleopatra and the fall of the Roman Empire. Laudable as some of those titles are, the problem was that if modern audiences remember them at all, it was a stilted, static, piously bloated and camp affairs. Honourable fathers and senators of Rome. Have you heard what is being proposed? Gaius Metellus Livius has asked that we, the Roman Senate, should give these barbarians 
these savages Roman citizenship and settle them on Roman land. Financially speaking, those films were often over budget, while depending on your aesthetic, they were often overwritten and overacted. But no matter which way you looked at them, they were always overlit. And that was primarily because of the limited capabilities of the lenses and film stocks available to cinematographers back in the 1950s and 60s. However, with technological advancement, not to mention the development of CGI, Gladiator had the opportunity to set a new standard in how the ancient world could be depicted. The first thing, of course, would be for all interiors to look as though they were lit exclusively by candles and torches. Here is the Oscar-nominated Matheson speaking to the Cook Optics TV channel on YouTube. Low light, you want a candle, you know, I always think with candles, you know, you want, you know, fire, you want the fire to work in the room. You know, if I lit a candle here and you said this was a nightlight, well, it wouldn't, the candle wouldn't do anything. You think, well, why has he got burning a candle? You can see perfectly well in there. That's what it bogged me bugged me about old 50s films, but they didn't really have this stock. But also they used to light in that bang crash way, which I think was very sophisticated. So you want your candle to work. You want it to feel like a little bit of a glow around the, the, the actual flame itself. And then you try and sneak in a light behind it to land on my face, like this one. Now, then you don't want to make sure this is too bright, because then it still looks like you're overpowering the candles. When it comes to shooting in low levels of light, the one film to which all are compared is Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. But when it comes to filming by candlelight, not all candles are the same. Certainly, household candles would not have sufficed back when, on the adaptation of William Thackeray's picaresque novel, cinematographer John Alcott looked through the specially modified lens Kubrick had borrowed from NASA. Barry Lyndon used a triple wick candle that provided a big flame which produced a much greater radiance. But no matter the candle, filming in low levels of light places enormous demands on the focus puller. The slightest movement by the actor, away from or towards the camera, can result in their going soft. Which largely explains why, on Barry Lyndon, the camera rarely if ever moves for the indoor scenes. And even while it is stock still, the actors barely move either. And while that worked perfectly for the theme of Kubrick's film, for Gladiator, a story predicated on mobility and dynamism, it would have only proved prohibitive to the point of self-defeating. But even though by the 1990s there had been enormous developments in faster lenses and film stocks, Scott and Matheson had to contend with the fact that they were composing their images with an entirely different aspect ratio to Kubrick, 235 instead of 166. And that difference greatly affects your close-ups. What's good then is to have some very good spherical fast lenses that can hold the focus so you can go down into that depth. Right, if you just shoot anamorphic, it, your blacks would start swimming, the focus would be very shallow, the lenses wouldn't really be biting, because they only really look good in about 284, even 5.6 on the old DPs when you shoot at 5.6, because that's when they really crunch and they start looking really solid. Mentioning 2.4 and 5.6, Matheson is referring to f-stops, and the f-stop is another factor that determines how much you see. Candlelight is always sublime on close-ups, because the actor's irises are fully dilated. Also, it is so dark, you can see the flames reflecting in their eyes, which means many little candle flames as opposed to one big electrical light. That may sound trivial, but without it, it can be distracting, because subliminally it throws you out of the scene's visual reality, and that then detracts from the scene's emotional reality. Which brings us back to Nicholson's point about tone. 
it helped inform everything from dialogue and music to picture and performance. And for me, everything in the film, every directorial decision Ridley Scott made was informed by tone. Which is perhaps why, with all its epic sweep and grandeur, magnificent crescendos and rhythms, I think Gladiator is the greatest opera ever filmed. Yeah.